Good morning, gentlemen. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing for me. I just I always look forward to Thursday mornings to be with you and study the Bible. And uh, as a teacher, I just want to say how wonderful it is to come to a setting where uh, the ladies back there prepared, prepared us such a wonderful breakfast and where the guys, uh, Dan and, and Robert and Michael Varner and uh, uh, Fred Schaefer, and I know others of you that are very involved in, in the Amen leadership team, you just have everything so well done. And it's, I just know as a teacher, for me, it's great to be able to come in and teach and know that all the logistics are taken care of and we're wonderfully led. I just think it'd be a great thing for us to give all these guys a big hand for all the work they've done this year. <clears throat> Those of us here, like myself, who just kind of stumble in and stumble out, you know, it's great to have everything just all set up for us. And you all, all of you, uh, do a wonderful job, and we, we thank you for it. Hey, take your Bibles. We're at the end of 2 Peter. Can you believe it? Uh, and uh, we have spent the year studying 1 Peter and 2 Peter, these two wonderful epistles. And we come to the end where Peter kind of makes his final closing argument. And the argument he's making, of course, is that we should be people who are growing all the time. As he said in chapter 1, we're making every effort to add to our faith until we become men of character and men of love. And he closes with the same sort of argument, and especially with respect to the second coming of Jesus Christ and why that's such an important thing for us to keep in mind. And I hope we're going to see this morning why it is important for us to be men who know of the second coming, who know where history is going, and who live daily, moment by moment, in light of it. Now, next year, when we start up in the fall, we're going to be going back to our Old Testament. I'm really excited about this because uh, there are some books called the, the Wisdom Books, like Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, including the Psalms, and there's a lot of material there. But we're going we're gonna to look at all this ancient wisdom and see how we bring that wisdom into everyday life. So we're going to be living in light of the wisdom of the ages as we study next year. So put September, Thursdays in September on your calendar and bring your friends with you. We'll get going on that. Meanwhile, I know we'll be enjoying the summer amens as well. But we'll uh, really take that heart of the Old Testament material on how to live a wise life and seek to bring it into the present day next year. Well, let's take a look at verses 11 through 18. There's a big section here, but it really is focused, I think, on this one theme of, of growing in Christ as a result of, of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, we're calling it Stand Guard, Draw the Right Conclusions, because we need to draw the right conclusions from our thoughts concerning the end times. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. 
His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Okay, he is asking the question, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And that's always the question we want to ask. If this is the case, if this teaching of Scripture is true, what difference does it make? If Jesus Christ is coming back, if the world is coming to an end as we know it, what difference does it make? What kind of lives ought we to live? Peter is never simply interested, and the Bible is not simply interested in these little fine arguments about whether you're premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial or post-toasties or whatever. I don't know what you are. It doesn't matter. Not so interested in all those details as they are. Okay, once you study the Word of God and figure out what the essence of this matter is, what difference does it make? And if something you're studying makes no difference in everyday life, I don't know why you're taking your time to study it. Uh, and the Bible is not interested in intellectual matters that are disassociated from practical matters. We are interested in intellectual matters. We do study things, and we, we enjoy it. We enjoy the life of the mind. But the mind is connected to the feet, and it always is in the Scriptures. And you'll notice Peter says, I'm not interested in just these, these erudite, disassociated discussions uh, about the end times. I want to know what kind of people ought we to be. And he gives us an answer. In verses 11 and 14, you see the first basic idea he's saying, that is that we should live faithfully. You ought to live holy and godly lives. He says in verse 14, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Peter is concerned about the ethical implications of our eschatology. So all of your eschatology ought to make a difference on today's life. So if you have your eyes set on the future, it ought to make a difference on where you're walking and how you're living today. Uh, take a look in 1 John which would be the next book in your Bible. Uh, turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and see how John puts it. He says, And now, dear children, this is 2.28, And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Continue in Him, so that we'll be confident and unashamed at His appearance. So John's thinking the same way. Turn, or rather just look right below that in chapter 3, and you see that John continues the argument. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now that's a wonderful verse worthy of memorization. We don't know what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And you can't see Him without being like Him. So we know we'll be like Him. Peter, uh, John says, we don't know everything, but we know this. We're going to be transmorphed. We're going to be transfigured. We're going to be transformed uh, into His likeness. What a glorious picture. Now notice what he says in the very next verse. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. Wow. 
John says, here's what difference it makes. Here's the reason you must be heavenly minded is because it is leading to your sanctification. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as Jesus Christ is pure. That's the reason that we have to concentrate on future things. You know, some, some guys will say, you know, oh, so-and-so, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You know, just thinking all these eschatological thoughts, just got his head up in the heavenlies and so on, and he's not very practical. Well, I want to tell you, after my years of pastoral experience and, and some Christian experience before that, I never found that heavenly minded guys were the ones that were tearing churches up. I never found that heavenly minded guys were the ones that were uh, failing to, to do the work of the mission in the city. I never found the heavenly minded guys were the ones uh, who were talking behind people's backs and, and creating rumors and slander. No, I found, I found it was the very earthly minded guys who were causing the problems. And so the picture you get in the scriptures is that we are very heavenly minded and we're very earthly valuable. They said of old Samuel Rutherford, the Puritan, that he had his head in the heavenlies, his hands firmly on the plow, and his feet planted on the ground. And that's the way it is. You're, you're, you're doing your daily work. And the reason you're doing your daily work is because of the hope that you have that life's going to get a whole lot better than this. And I'm on the march to go somewhere. Lead on, O King Eternal. I'm going somewhere. And that's the picture of the Christian man. So uh, back to Second Peter. That's the reason Peter is saying, we ought to ask what, what kind of lives ought we to live. And he's saying, look, first of all, live a holy life. And then he uses the, the, the word godly. Live a godly life. And then you get in verse 14 that we're to be spotless and blameless, contrary to the heretics in 2 Peter 2.13 uh, who were blemished and uh, who were just the opposite of spotless. And then we are to be at peace with Him in verse 14. That's the kind of life we're supposed to live, a life of peace with Him, where consciences are settled uh, because we know that He's going to bring things to a glorious end. And so you see here really three sorts of directions, if I could put it this way, to try to summarize the kind of life Peter is talking about. First of all, it's a life that is, uh, it is a holy life. It's a life whose uh, words and deeds and doings and thoughts are in conformity with the Word of God. That's called righteousness. You're, you're conforming to God's law. So the first thing is that if you believe in the second coming and if you are, have your minds set on it, then your life is going to be changed. You will be pure as He is pure. If you don't have a heavenly mindedness, let me tell you what happens. You get cynical. You get apathetic. Uh, and, and you get depressed. And you see really no reason for living. And I was just talking to a guy this past week who was really struggling with feeling like a failure. When you've got your eyes on the end goal and you see that you will see him as he is, therefore you will be like him. Gentlemen, you're not a failure. You're greater than the angels. And you too will be glorified one day. You will not be calling yourself a failure. And so when you get your eyes on the goal, you see where you're headed, the last thing you'd call yourself would be a failure. But if you look at what you're doing now compared to whatever model you set as your standard of achievement, of course, we could all set ourselves up as failure. We get into cynicism, apathy, despair, depression, and all the rest. 
This, this gets us out of that. So the first thing is a holy life. Then you'll notice that he says we live a godly life. That is that we're, we're engaged in the worship of God. And when you go to worship this Sunday, I hope that part of, at least a big part of what crosses your mind is that you're headed toward the heavenly city. You're headed toward the new Jerusalem. You're going to be there real soon. And uh, you get your mind on that and you press your mind into heaven, as Jonathan Edwards said. And so it has to do with the worship of God. You become a worshiping person throughout the day, not just on Sunday. But you're constantly worshiping God, ascribing greatness to Him. You're thinking about Him. You've got your mind on Him. You're thinking about heaven because that's where He is. And you're thinking about Him. And thirdly, this kind of life is a life that is useful for other people as you give yourself to service in this day. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So we're, first of all, living a holy life. We are worshiping God and we are serving our neighbor. All these things are the ways in which we ought to live. Holy, godly, spotless, blameless, peaceful lives. Now, secondly, notice that we live not only faithfully, but we look forwardly. He says, you can see this looking forward mentioned three times in verses 12 through 14. As you look forward to the day of God, looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, looking forward uh, to this, he says in verse 14. So three times, looking forward. You get an idea there, don't you? We're looking forward. What are we looking forward to? Two things. The first is the old will pass away. We're actually looking forward to that. We think the old ought to pass away. And we're trying to sometimes grab for all the gusto in this life. I'm telling you, it's passing away. And the reason it's passing away, it's inferior. It's fallen. It's broken. And guys are just trying to squeeze out of it all that it's worth. I want to travel to every continent. I want to see every mountain over 14,000 feet. I want to, you know, whatever it is. Why? I mean, you know, I love God's creation. It's wonderful to praise Him for His creation. But why do you have to drain everything you can out of this life? It's a waste of time. Guys, one day, this life is going to be a big pile of ashes. Man, I've seen more ashes than you have. <laughs> I've been to more ash-filled places than you have. You know, what's the point? He's saying, look, uh, the old is going to pass away. Don't build your life on something that is passing before your very eyes. It's like a vapor, uh, say the apostles. And uh, it, you know, it's, it's going to be total and complete. It's going to, look, he uses words like destruction, melt. <laughs> this, this thing's going, 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 going. It's like the Titanic. You know, nothing could sink it. Oh, yeah? Watch this. <laughs> and it's going to sink. It's going to melt. It's going to be destroyed. And isn't it interesting? It's going to be destroyed by fire, which is kind of similar to what some scientists are saying about how this expanding universe will begin contracting and just end up in a big reverse bang or whatever. It, it, you know, it could very well be. Who knows? But we're told that it'll be by fire. And secondly, the new will come. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward. We're looking forward to something. What? A new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Now, notice he doesn't say we're looking forward to heaven. Often when we think about our final state, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, we think about ourselves kind of floating around like angels and playing harps. Now, I'm all for harps. I, I hope that I am able to play one one day. In fact, I'm hoping when I get there that I'm able to conduct the orchestra. I've always wanted to conduct the orchestra, but you've got to be able to keep time and read music. 
That's a problem. But one of these days, I'm, I'm just assuming the Lord's going to grant my wish. I'm going to be able to intuit enough music just to conduct the orchestra. That'd just be so much fun. You know, call on this instrument, that instrument, and get it all going. That'd just be great. I, I envy John Hodges every time he leads one of those things. But whatever. It's, it's a good thing to be able to play an instrument. And it'd be a good thing to float around. I see nothing wrong with that. I'd like to float around. I'd like to play instruments. I think it'd be great. But that's not the picture of the scriptures that were given about the end time. We're not just, we don't turn into angels or cats or something like that, you know. What we have are new heavens and a new earth with a new body. And the body will be just like the body of Jesus Christ. So, you know, it, it was different than his body before his resurrection, but it was consistent with his body. And it was his, it was his earthly body, but it was transfigured in some way. And that's the way our bodies will be. He could eat, but he could also walk through walls, if you remember, after his resurrection. So our bodies will be somewhat different, but somewhat the same. But we will have physical bodies and will be in a physical place. The new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. It will have streets and gates and walls, and it'll be beautiful. And there'll be no sun or moon, so the, the creation, new creation won't be winding down with a, another sun and moon. But the Lamb will give light to the city. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself will be the source of light for the city. Amazing thing in all of His glory. And we will, we will enjoy a physical, a physical life. But it will be, be renewed. And it will be better than the Garden of Eden because we will be unable to fall. Adam and Eve were able to fall, obviously. That's how we got here. We will be unable to fall. So our existence will be better than the first existence in the palace gardens in Genesis 1 and 2. So it's going to be a very physical existence, a new heaven and heavens and a new earth, a new firmament and a new ground. And it will be perfectly holy. It will be peaceful, consistent, no danger, no evil, no strife. That's what we're looking forward to. And uh, that is what cheers us along the way. It's not an airy, fairy existence. It is an existence on the new earth with new heavens. Now, notice that in the passing away of the old order and the coming of the new, there's really only one thing that continues. You're going to have this fire. Everything's going to melt down. The old order is gone. Behold, the new has come. But there's one thing that passes through from the order order to the new, and that's human beings. And you'll notice how important to Peter human beings are. And you'll notice how important they are to be to us. That we know in the last day that everyone will be raised up. Now Paul teaches this. The good and the evil. The wicked and the righteous. The believers and the unbelievers. Everybody will be raised at the coming of Christ. They'll be raised up for judgment. Everyone will face the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't want to face him and have to give answer for all my sins. If I had to, I'd be on my way to hell like that. Because of any sin would commit, would commit me to hell. But I have a lot of them. And I have little ones and I have gargantuan ones. I have a very bad record of my own performance. If I have to stand before him with that performance, I'm toast. But the Lord Jesus Christ has stood in my place. He has canceled all my sins. He has given me His righteousness. I'm one of His. And so I will enter heaven, and you will enter heaven if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, simply because you're entering on His record. 
And those who don't have his record will have to stand on their own record. And I would assume that unless they died a lot sooner than I have seemed to have died, they will be in just as bad shape as I'm in. And they'll have just about as much hope for heaven as I have, which is zero on my own record. So everyone will appear before Christ. Those who are in Christ and who are judged to be in Christ and who are admitted into His presence because of His perfection on their record, they will go into the new heavens and the new earth there to enjoy Him forevermore. Those who don't will be consigned to the place of punishment forever and ever and ever. Gentlemen, this is an awesome thing. And it always has us on the edge if we're thinking about it. And it should have us on the edge. People are important. The people you work with are important. The people in your family are important. The people in your neighborhood are important. And everything that we do for Christ is important. The things that we do in terms of mercy ministry to help people are important. They're demonstrations of the gospel. Every time we invite someone to get involved in church or Bible study or to receive Jesus Christ as Savior is important. That's the proclamation of the gospel because it has to do with their, not only their present relationship with Jesus Christ, but their eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. And, all, and obviously both of these things are important, the demonstration of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. But it seems to me that although they're both important and they always go together and you never separate them, you always keep them together, when it comes to evangelism or the proclamation of the gospel, you're talking about someone's eternal welfare. And if you feed them and clothe them and give them a good education, but you don't lead them to Jesus Christ, you have blessed them for three score and ten. Or if by sake of special endurance they make four score, you've blessed them for 80 years. Great. Good work. That's important. It really is. And it's a good demonstration of God's gospel and free grace in Christ. But if you lead them to faith in Jesus Christ, you've secured their happiness for eternity. That seems to me to be a lot more important. So these two things are always together. But the communication of the gospel that enables people to receive Jesus Christ has always got to be the prior thing precisely because of the new heavens and the new earth, precisely because of the eternal state, and because, precisely because of what's in the balance uh, in this gospel communication. And that's the reason we study the Word. We want to be reminded constantly to, to look forwardly and to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth because otherwise we're led to cynicism and despair Apathy in our ethical lives, it happens in every case. So here we have it. The old will pass away totally and completely, and the new will come. And we want to be people who have our minds set on these things, who are living in the light of it, and who are helping other people to get their lives in light of reality. When Noah was building the ark, I'm sure that almost all the world would scorn him and make fun of him for building that big boat in his backyard. What in the world are you doing, Noah? Just making fun of him all the time until the waters came. Nobody was making fun of him anymore. He was the only one who had been living in the light of reality, taking all of his resources, all of his time, and building an ark for his family and for the animals. He was the only one who was living in light of reality. And I tell you, the only one who's really living in light of reality is the man who's got his eyes set on the things to come. And he's living his life there and is encouraging other people to do the same. And people will scorn you. They'll make fun of you. They'll say that you're pie in the sky. It's only pie in the sky if you don't believe it. If you believe it, it's not pie in the sky. It's reality. And it's what is going to make all the difference in the world now and the world to come. Corey Tim Boom once said that when I enter that beautiful city, I pray, uh, 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 when I enter that beautiful city, 
and the saved around me appear. I trust that someone will tell me it was you who invited me here. And uh, that's the way we want it to be. We believe in the new heavens and the earth right now, and we invite people to come with us. Look forwardly. Live faithfully. Look forwardly. Now, if you get to verses 15, 16, you'll see that he says, wait patiently. Wait patiently. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. That is, A, God is saving you. He's saving you even now, even as you impatiently wait for the day of His coming. He is patiently waiting for you and for your brothers and sisters to come into the kingdom. He is gathering up all of His people. So we have peace as we wait on Him. And we, we think that He's taking too long, but we forget people are the main thing. And He has His eyes on people, and He's saving people. And our task is to be involved in the same task, saving people. Helping them now with their temporal circumstances and helping them with their, their eternal destiny. People. That's what this is all about. This is what the waiting is all about. The waiting is and letting you live another day is not so that you can accumulate more material possessions that are going to be passing away. The point of having us live another day is so that we can be engaged in God's patient, saving love toward this world. That's the whole agenda. Are you in it? If someone asks you for a life plan, would that be your plan? Would everything in your work Everything in your family, everything in your community, everything in your church be centered around this life plan? That's, this is God's plan. Is your life plan based on His plan? This is the whole agenda. And if you have that plan in your mind, if someone watches you live your life this week, would they say, He must have a plan because everything He does is focused. It's focused on something. I'm not quite sure what it is, but that man's got a plan. Does your life reflect the plan? Do your ambitions reflect the plan? Before you go to sleep at night, the last thing you're thinking about, is it about the Lord and His plan and what He wants you to do in this life? Are you taken up with it? If the new heavens and the new earth are coming, wouldn't you agree this is the big deal? That everything else just is almost insignificant by comparison? That's the deal. Wait patiently. God is saving you. And why? B, God has told you. He says, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you. He said, it's not just me. I'm not the only one talking about this. You know, it's all in your Torah. It's all in the Old Testament. And the apostles are showing you the meaning of the Torah and how it's to come true in Jesus Christ. And we learn from that, first of all, that God gave wisdom to his messengers. He says, with the wisdom that God gave him. And he calls, he calls Paul's writings the, uh, along with the other scriptures. So he's obviously referring to Paul's writings this early on. Imagine this. This is late first century uh, or, or mid first century, I should say. And here in the 60s A.D., he's already calling Paul's writings scriptures. And people think that didn't happen until later centuries. Not so. Paul recognized, that, as we saw last week, that he was writing the word of God. And so did Peter. This word for scriptures, graphe, is found 50 times in the New Testament. And in every case, it refers to Old Testament scriptures. And here Peter is applying that word graphe to Paul. So his writings are equal to the Old Testament scriptures. And you find these other references 
uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Colossians 4, 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, 27, where you get this self-consciousness of writing the Scriptures. Secondly, his messengers write consistently. He writes the same way in all his letters. Gentlemen, one thing that will impress you about the Bible, if you really start reading through it, is its consistency from front to end. It's amazing to me. I remember as a new Christian reading the, beginning to read the Scriptures seriously, and I realized that here are these, these books, you know, a bunch of books, <laughs> Old and New Testament, uh, written from, you know, probably 2000 B.C. in the earliest. If you get Job, you know, he might have been written that early or at least 1500 B.C. And all the way up to one, 100 A.D. And all these authors, and they're giving us fundamentally the same message. And what they have to say is consistent with one another. They're inherently consistent within the book, and they're consistent with each other. Does this mean that we have no problems in interpreting the Scriptures, that sometimes they seem to be contradicting themselves? No, of course not. As you take any book you know, with 2,000 pages in it, you're going to have some things, well, these fit together. Of course, uh, it's not easy. And he says that here. Uh, in fact, that's our third point. His messengers write humanly. His letters contain, contain some things that are hard to understand. Of course they're hard to understand. But there is a consistency. And I was just impressed, deeply impressed. It, consistency on who God is, consistency on what God has done, consistency on who I am as a creature made in the image of God and as a sinner in need of His grace, consistency on God's plan of salvation, consistency on what's going to happen in the future, unbelievable consistency in the Scriptures. And yet there's some things that are hard to understand. And we saw when we discussed this maybe a couple of weeks ago that that's not all bad, you know. Because when something's hard to understand, you apply your mind with extra energy. And you're applying your mind to the Scriptures to try to sort these things out and understand them. And that's a good thing. So don't be daunted because it's hard to understand. Because God, as John Calvin once said, God in the Scriptures is talking in baby talk. You have God with the infinity and immensity of His own mind condescending to human language. It's like goo-goo-ga-ga, you know, to explain the, the immensity of the universe. And, of course, we're little infants, and we can't understand adult thinking, and we're doing the best we can. And when He condescends to speak in our language, we can expect that every once in a while our language won't quite accommodate the immensity of His thinking and of His being. So don't be daunted when you see things difficult to understand. Say, oh, well, this is what I would expect to see far more often in the Scriptures. It's amazing that the Scriptures are as clear to me as they are. It's amazing with God in His infinite wisdom condescending to human language and being as clear as, as, as His authors are. Of course, you'll have things difficult to understand. But unfortunately, in those areas, number four, His readers sometimes distort what He says. And they distort it because of sin. They're ignorant and unstable people, and they distort the Word of God, and you find it happening today. There's so many instances. I've had instances in my life. I've read arguments uh, that were written in the 19th century to defend racial slavery in America. Can you imagine that? Someone using the Bible to defend slavery? Well, of course they did. Ignorant, unstable people will take the Bible and distort it to create an aura or an existence of something they want with their evil minds. They do that all the time. I've, had, I've sat in an office of an abortionist talking with him about abortions, and he quotes Scripture to me and builds a biblical case, at least in his distorted head, 
for why it's a good thing for him to do abortions. And it had something to do with, well, you know, when people grow up, they become sinners and some of them might go to hell. But if I take them when they're in the mother's womb, don't they just go straight to heaven? See, I'm sending people to heaven. This wicked man said that to me. Ignorant, unstable people, distorting the beauty of the Word of God and the goodness of the Word of God. It's a wicked, wicked thing. I've had people who were involved in heterosexual relationships, adulterous, fornicating relationships. Take the Bible and tell me why it was a good thing. That God gave us feelings of love or somewhere, I don't know what verse he turned to, and how could he then deny that for him now? I've had homosexual people do the same thing, take the Bible and defend their own immorality. I've had people take the Bible and defend not participating in the fellowship of believers. I've had people take the Bible and, and explain ripping somebody off financially. It's amazing what ignorant and unstable people can do. And I'm sure I and my ignorance and instability have destroyed the Bible myself because we all have something we want with the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and we can distort anything, even the Word of God. And when you find the devil tempting Jesus in the wilderness, what does he use? The Bible. And that ought to give you a hint that just because someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean they're right. It's much deeper than that. We'll get into that next year when we talk about wisdom. But here he says, look, some things are difficult to understand, and that gives some people an excuse to distort it. Some people even believe in infant baptism. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm a Presbyterian all the way. I know some of you think I'm a Baptist insurrectionist. No, I'm really Presbyterian. Okay. Fourthly, watch this. We're to watch purposefully. We live faithfully. We look forwardly. We wait patiently. And we watch purposefully. Be on your guard, he says. Gentlemen, this is so important. And Peter knew. Peter knew why. Peter had to be on guard. Peter was like me. <laughs> Does dumb things. Says dumb things. Believes dumb things. Peter was cowardly. He had to watch out. Remember when Jesus was being tried by Annas and Caiaphas. And he's right outside the house. And a little maiden woman says, Aren't, Don't you know him? Peter took an oath and swore. Never knew him. Three times. Peter knows what it's like to fall disastrously. Peter knows what it's like to be hanging around the wrong crowd and let that crowd influence you because you don't want them to think you're weird. It's so childish. This is kindergarten stuff. And when you're 68 years old, you're still doing kindergarten stuff. You're still trying to be in with the boys and still trying to fit in and not be weird. Still trying to get along instead of getting along with God. You want to get along with people. And that's exactly what Peter knew about himself. He said, guys, watch yourself. Be careful. And some of you are not being careful enough. You're not careful with the things that you watch on TV or the movies that you take in. You're not careful enough with accountability, with friends who know what's going on in your life. You're not careful enough in the way that you conduct your financial affairs. You don't have enough people really watching what you're doing. You're not careful in what you read. You're not careful in what you say. He's just saying, look, guard yourself. Realize there's an all-out war going on. He says, A, do not be carried away so that you may not be carried away. There is a sinister attempt on your eternal life, gentlemen. And you are, you are being lured right now 
so that you can be carried away. There is some being in this universe as sinister and ugly and awful as this sounds, it's true. There's a being in this universe who takes his highest joy, his chief delight, is to trip you up and get you going the other direction and to have you condemned for eternity. He takes great delight in that. And the reason is he's condemned for eternity and he wants as much miserable company as he can find. That, that plot is going on right now. I know, you know people think you're crazy when you think the devil's after you. The devil's after you. And if people think you're crazy, let them think you're crazy, but it's true. And so you better be on your watch. Look at the method. It's temptation. You're carried away by the error of lawless men. These are unprincipled people, and they will spew out errors, and sometimes they're couched in very intellectual arguments and sophistry, and they're very difficult to refute because you have to study carefully where are the logical non-sequiturs in their arguments. Some of them are ingenious. They are actually virtuoso in their ability to create an argument that is fundamentally going in the wrong direction and fundamentally flawed, but I don't have the intelligence to figure it out. I just have to be on guard. And you have to guard your mind and as you listen to the various arguments around. It's not just politics and religion. It's everything. It's ethics in your Marital relationship, ethics in your dating relationships, ethics in your business. Be on guard to be sure that you're not being carried away by the error of unprincipled people. It's amazing how slick unprincipled people can be. And it can make it appear okay for you to do it. And that's exactly the devil's strategy, to get it okay enough so that it's socially acceptable and even has a certain plausibility to it so you can adopt it and not look like an idiot. But it's an error of lawless, unprincipled people. And what does it lead to? The results are disaster. You fall from your secure position. Now, this word fall is most often used for apostasy, and that's really what it means, is that you were affirming Christ, you were professing faith in Him, and now you're led astray so that no longer are you professing faith in Him and following the, the teachings of the Scriptures. That's what it means to fall, is to apostatize. And, he, and Peter knows how dangerous this is. He denied Jesus Christ three times, and then he was restored. And then after he was an apostle, he got confused himself. There were unprincipled people in Galatia, near this church that he's running to right here in Second Peter. There were unprincipled people, people in Galatia who were saying that Gentiles really can't have full involvement with Jewish Christians because they don't keep the dietary laws. And Peter, in a moment of weakness and wanting to please the Jewish crowd, refused to eat with the Gentiles and went over and ate with the Jews. And Paul came at him, you remember, and excoriated him, a fellow apostle, for denying the gospel in showing racial and religious favoritism based on their religious background. They're all brothers in Jesus Christ, and now they're dividing up. And Paul says, this is a denial of the gospel, Peter. And Peter had to, here's an apostle, apostle, greater than a bishop, greater than an archbishop. And Peter repented publicly because he was being carried away by the teaching of lawless men who were fundamentalists, and they were lawless, and fundamentalists or, or legalists are lawless. And Peter was being led astray by them and had to repent. He knows what this falling is all about. And he said, look, gentlemen, if you're not willing to repent when you're a teacher in the church, 
you're going to fall. Because you are a human being. And if you're so big and so important, and your pride is so big and so powerful that you can no longer publicly repent, you're out of business. You are now set up for a fall. And if some of you in your church life are, have such a profile that it's impossible for you to repent, you're going to fall. It's guaranteed because you're going to sin. So Peter knows what this is like. He knows what is required to be watchful. It's very humiliating to be watchful because you're constantly in a state of repentance. So he says, watch out. Temptation will lead to disaster if you're not on your guard. And then look, he says, he goes from the negative, do not be carried away, to the positive, which is grow. And this gets us back to the main point of 2 Peter. Here you have it. He starts 2 Peter by saying, look, add to your faith, godliness and love and so on. Be a person who's growing. And now he gets to the end when he's talking about all these wicked teachings that are all around us that would lead us astray. These are not just intellectual arguments that entertain us that challenge us intellectually. No, these are arguments that can lead to ethical disaster and eschatological disaster. And he comes back right where he started. You want, you want the answer is? Grow. Be a growing Christian. And of course, there is no other kind of Christian. That's his point. Notice he says, but grow. Now, grow, growth would once again, I, supp I suppose we could use these same three categories. If you're a growing man, you're going to grow in your holiness of life. You're going to be increasing in your holiness and godliness of life. You're going to be growing in your worship of God and your praise of Him. And you're going to be growing in your usefulness or service to other people. So once again, those three, same three categories. And this is how, how we want to grow. We want to grow in all those categories. And he says, here's the content of growth. Grace and knowledge. You want to grow in grace. You want to grow in knowledge. Now, you've got to be growing. As I've said to you before, an old elder told me, if you ain't growing, you ain't going. You've got to be growing. Uh, the Christian faith is like a bicycle. You know, have you ever tried to keep a bicycle on balance just by standing there? Mm, <laughs> you know, just fall over one side or the other. You've got to move the bicycle to be able to keep your balance. It's the same way with the Christian faith. You've got to be on the move. There's got to be momentum in your life in order for you to keep your balance and to keep your life going and to ward off the evils, and to, you've got to be looking forward, straining forward, and moving forward. You're moving toward the heavenly city. You're moving toward the new heavens and the earth. Now you can keep your balance and ward off the things around you. And Paul says that he himself, this is from Philippians 3, he's pressing on, forgetting what is behind. I press on, he says. So you're constantly pressing forward. The best defense is a good offense. That's what we're saying here. Get your offensive game going. Be growing, growing in your holiness and your worship of God and your service to others. Now, he uses grace and knowledge, so we want to grow in grace. Let's talk about these two for just a moment. What does it mean to grow in grace? Well, first of all, you're going to have to be born again by the grace of God, forgiven of your sins by the grace of God. So you've got, in order to grow, you have to have life. A rock can't grow, doesn't have any life. A tree can grow. It has life. If you want to grow, you have to have life. Where does this life come from? The new life in Jesus Christ. You must be born again, says the, says the Lord Jesus Christ. You must, you must, you must be born again. You must have eternal life now in order to be growing in life in the Christian experience. 
So seek life from Him by faith in Jesus Christ. Receive the new birth and the power of the Spirit. Now you can grow. How do you grow? You grow in His grace. What does that mean? It means, first of all, you grow in your capacity to receive the grace of God. Some of you will, before this day is over, you will have condemned yourself. Say, oh, what's the use? I'm terrible, I'm awful. You just condemn yourselves. Why? Because you're not appropriating the grace of God. He has completely forgiven you. He happens to like you. He happens to love you, even though you don't love yourself. So growing in the grace of God is growing in being loved and allowing Him to love you. And some of you don't know how to accept a compliment. You don't know how to accept achievement. You don't know how to accept anything good in your life. You're just on to the next thing. Grow in the grace of God. Realize that He has given you Himself. And He has a wonderful place prepared for you. And He has a wonderful destiny appointed for you. Receive that. Grow in the grace of His forgiveness. Grow in the grace of adoption, knowing that you're His beloved Son. And then grow in being gracious toward other people. Grow in grace. If you've, been, if you've received grace, you're going to give grace. You can tell whether you've received His grace by whether you're being gracious to other people. If you're not being gracious to other people, you've not allowed Him to be gracious to you because that's the way it works. You're gracious to other people precisely because someone's being gracious to you. And you're indebted to God to be gracious to other people because He's being gracious to you. So grow in His grace. Then He says grow in knowledge. Grow in knowledge about Christ. Notice that, that the content is grace and knowledge, but the source is Jesus Christ. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The source of this knowledge is Christ Himself. And there are two types of knowledge. There's knowledge about Christ and knowledge of Christ. You want to grow in both. If I say, well, I just want to be close to my wife. I don't care anything about her. I just want to, I just want to grow closer to her. I don't have to know what her favorite color is or what her favorite meal is or what her favorite movies are. I don't need to know anything about her. I just need to be close to her. That's ridiculous. In order to get close to her, I need to know about her. How am I going to love her if I don't know about her? So you want to do both. But if I just say, you know, I just want to know about her. Just, sweetie, send me an email about what your favorite movies are and we'll just email from my office to the house. And I, you know, I won't be coming around very often, but I just want to know more about you. Well, that's ridiculous. I don't want to know her. So you want to know about someone and you want to know them personally. And both are involved. Grow in your knowledge about Jesus Christ and grow in your knowledge and experience of Jesus Christ. And knowledge includes both of these things. And sometimes I think that we do not take our knowledge of Jesus Christ or about Jesus Christ very seriously. If you go to Rhodes College and pay your $40,000 a year or whatever it costs now to go over there for one year, or you send a kid over there, and you're paying $40,000 out of your bank account, you would have some hope that in their freshman year, some adult would come around your 19-year-old kid and say, now let's talk about what you're going to try to accomplish during these four years. I mean, if you're paying that much money, somebody ought to know what they're doing over there. And so you would hope that some adult, some faculty advisor would get with your kid and say, now, what are we going to try to accomplish in these four years? What does it mean to be an educated man? an educated woman? What does it mean to have a baccalaureate degree that means something? What disciplines ought you be able to, to conquer and to master with a baccalaureate degree? What are the core issues that need to be developed in your life? Now let's sit down and talk about that. You would hope that if you're paying $40,000, somebody's doing that with your kid over there. 
And then you would hope if you're paying $160,000 that by the time they get that baccalaureate degree, it means more than just a ticket to get a job, that they actually have learned something. They've actually gone through the rigors of learning about the various disciplines of the liberal arts and that they're an educated person, or at least they have the beginnings of being an educated person at the baccalaureate level. You would hope for $160,000 that you'd get that out of Rhodes College. And I'm glad to say I think you would. But you know, people go to church all the time. They don't have anybody sit down with them. They never sit down with themselves. They never ask what they're trying to accomplish, what they want to know, what the disciplines are going to be to get there. No one ever suggests to them that there are courses you can take, amen, Bible studies, Sunday schools, read this, read that. No one seems to give them a curriculum. And no one here seems to take uh, the time to chart out the course over the next four years. But I'm telling you something, the next four years in your life and spiritual development are far more important than the kid over at Rhodes for whom we're paying $160,000 a year. And Peter is saying, would you please be on guard about something? Would you please plan to grow these next four years? Would you please then have a plan for it? Because you're probably not going to grow unless you do have a plan. Everybody shoots that arrow up in the air, it lands, and then we draw a bullseye right around it. And that's the way most people grow in the Christian life, which means they're not growing very much. Why don't you figure out what bullseye is, and then why don't you shoot your arrow toward it? And then if you miss bullseye, at least you knew you tried. Figure out what bullseye is. Let's grow in our grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the point of it all. And we want to grow through being born again. We want to grow through reading the Bible. We want to grow through prayer. We want to go through the sacraments and fellowship in the church. We want to grow through ministering to people in need. Do you realize that when you're serving in this community and you're serving around the world, that one of the big dramas that's taking place is that you're growing. Jesus said, he didn't say, Gentlemen, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, what I want you to do is keep fishing, and every afternoon take 30 minutes and just think about the kingdom. No, he said, come, drop your nets, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And when you're engaged in ministry, you're following Christ. You've dropped something, you've went out and done something, you're engaged in his ministry, and the most valuable thing about it is you're engaged with him. And when you're engaged with taking care of the poor or taking care of the Memphis City schools or taking care of those who are marginalized in society or helping uh, African Americans and women start up businesses in Memphis, which is a crying need, when you're involved in these things in our community to help those who are on the margins, you are learning about Jesus Christ because that is His ministry. And when you're sharing the gospel with someone next to you, you know what the main thing is? You're getting to know Jesus Christ. You're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice lastly, that the purpose of all this growth and the purpose of all this heavenly mindedness is to give glory to God. Peter closes with this really unusual sort of doxology. To him be glory both now and forever. I mean, it looks very ordinary. It's not ordinary for two reasons. First of all, he says, glory be to him. Who's him? Jesus Christ. That's unusual. Almost all your doxologies in the scriptures are simply ascribed to God. Here it's ascribed to Jesus Christ. The only one to whom you ascribe doxologies is God. So what you have here is Peter's ascription of something of the deity to Christ. And he is lifting Christ up. He's saying, look, gentlemen, the way in which you know God is to know Christ. You cannot know God apart from Him. You can know certain things about Him in creation, but you can't know Him personally, but through Jesus Christ to Him 
be the glory. So he is ascribing deity to Christ. He's ascribing glory to Christ. And he's saying the whole purpose of your personal growth, the whole purpose of your straining toward heaven, the whole purpose of setting your mind on things above, the whole purpose of all of this is to give glory to Jesus Christ who alone is worthy of it. We're not worthy of it. We are recipients of His grace. We've been brought in like beggars looking for bread and He has graciously fed us. But here is one who in and of Himself without exception over all eternity has kept the law of God perfectly and in keeping the law of God has kept the law of love and has laid down His life that we might have life, that we might know Him and knowing Him we might have eternal life and knowing Him we might delight ourselves in the knowledge of God not only now but forever and ever and ever. And Peter is saying the end of all things the end of all existence is to bring glory to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying to glory to be to Him now and forever. And the reason that you strain toward heaven now is that you might glorify Him now. The reason you strain toward heaven now is that in the future when you're there, you'll give glory to Him there. The whole purpose of your existence is to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this last phrase that says forever, literally it's, it's unto the, the day of ages. He's just saying the endless day will give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of everything, including your growth and your carefully guarding yourself against all evil and persevering in all good. Gentlemen, it's been a wonderful nine months to study 1 Peter and 2 Peter with you. And we've seen so many things in 1 Peter about how to endure sufferings, how to submit to authority, how to love Jesus Christ with our heart, soul, mind, and strength how to be patiently waiting for the day. Second Peter, we've seen how we're to grow and not let the false teachings that are very secularized and take our eyes off the eternal goal, how to guard ourselves from that so that we are glorifying Christ now and glorifying Him forever. And one day, we won't be an amen Bible study anymore. We'll be before the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be learning directly from Him with no mediator, no sinful preachers, no, no written material, really. We won't need it. We'll have it. The law of God will be written upon our hearts and our eyes will be set firmly on Him and our hearts will be absolutely full to overflowing with the joy of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You have a destiny for us that is absolutely beyond our grandest imaginations. But it is our task to purify our imaginations that we may more and more apprehend the coming day when Jesus Christ will reveal Himself in all of His glory and will make us like Him. We ask that as we do the mundane things of this day and of this week, the very simple things, that we will never lose sight of the fact that we are made for glory and that we are going to be ruling and judging angels one day very soon. And so as we go our way, in public and private places today and throughout this summer, help us to live as men who know where we're going. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. God bless you guys.